Welcome to Lagrange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science, technology, and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia, who are a youth organisation with members aged 15 to 25, whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week on Lagrange Point, we talk about reading your dreams, mind control devices, and accurate measurements of pain. On today's episode, we have Lauren. Hi. Justin. And James. Hi. We're going to kick off with our Launchpad News section. So a team, a team of scientists and engineers at the University of Minnesota have discovered an interesting little trick they can use to basically give somebody almost force-like powers over their surrounds. Well, hang on a second. I heard the word force powers and like surroundings and I am so there. Where do I sign up? <laughs> so the idea is to traditionally to be able to get signals out of somebody's brain to say make a new artificial hand move mechanically has required an implant chip in your brain. It has physical electrodes that pick up the signals of various neurons firing. Now this is obviously fairly invasive and that's slightly problematic for a lot of people. So what this team have been doing is trying to come up with a way of reading these signals in a non-invasive procedure by wearing sort of a funny-looking head cap. This, this allows people to, say, if you had an injury or can no longer move around on your own, to regain their independence. I mean, if you have this sort of fine electrical control, you can then do things like fly a, heli- fly a remote control helicopter with the power of your mind. Well, that's amazing. Would this be good for people, you know, who've had spinal injuries um, for controlling stuff like wheelchairs? Definitely. I mean, it, you can use it like that. You can use it in a whole sorts of different ways. Depending on the exact application, I and mean, you can take someone from being in a wheelchair to driving a car from the back seat, James Bond style. <laughs> and that would be really great. So there's a lot of devices that use these type of caps where people wear them on their heads and they, they scan the activity of the brain and they use it to direct things. I personally have used one where I got to actually move a train with my eyes um, using the signal, so like moving my eyes back and forth. So this one is this one using the getting the person to think about a certain action or is it just using the act, the thought themselves in their brain? But I believe it's the thought themselves, the electrical activity that's moving around. The only issue with this is, of course, that this electrical activity is extremely weak and picking it up from outside the cranium is very difficult so and this is what the team is working on a lot of the time what they actually get people to do is think about tennis because imagining tennis is a really really specific but easily observable action in the brain so thinking about a game of tennis or thinking about playing tennis or watching it is a really recognizable brain pattern does it have to be specifically tennis or could it be another sport Oh, no, no, specifically tennis is a really, really observable. There's just something about the back and forward motion of it and that actually triggers certain parts of the brain. So when they've done studies of this in the past, that's been one of the training steps to actually get people used to thinking and controlling something with their mind. So all those people who go to Wimbledon will be like really good at controlling helicopters in the future? Maybe, maybe. There's a really other interesting application about this, and that's where you go towards people who are unable to speak or in potentially vegetative states and getting responses from them well, even they don't have control of their body by reading their mind. So if you've got people who are in a vegetative state or in a coma or things like that, you might be able, this might be a way to communicate with them. And they have done experiments with this with people in, with people in, in debilitating conditions like that. And they've got some preliminary evidence for that now, but it's an area where they're working on. Um, the problem is that it does require a lot of training to be able to pick up the specific signals. So eventually using the power of the mind, we can overcome... The yeah. physical limitations of our bodies. <laughs> and we can really put our mind over the matter. And our matter over the mind. Now, unfortunately for now, you're going to have to really wear one of these goofy caps, but I'm sure that a cool fashion designer could make it into something really cool. 
Um, one of the really interesting examples that they're doing this now is actually using it with drone quadrocopters and um, getting them to interact with the environment on behalf of people and feed back images as well. So now you've not only got something you're controlling with it, but it's also feeding back information to you. So you can actually then fly something, but then get you could also have the video from that robot. So you're now actually exploring or living out something's actions themselves. So maybe one day all our drone pilots in the army or the military will actually be wearing suits like this, which allow them to feel and be like they're there, as opposed to just controlling it with their mind. And eventually we won't even have to get out of the bed to go to school in the morning. Well, I think that's a little way off, but you can maybe one day you'll be able to sleep in forever, Lauren. So James, I hear you just finished um, your work on the Q project. Has this affected your dreams in any way? Completely. I don't think I've managed to get more than about an hour into my sleep without being filled with images of rotating cubes endlessly spinning on planes. Justin, I hear there's been some work in dreams being done. Well, actually, James, fortunately enough, you're clearly the best kind of participant for a new study being done out of Japan. And that is where they ask subjects to think about specific images, put them to sleep, and then measure their dr- the responses of their brains in an MRI machine. And what they've actually found is that they've recorded from all these different participants after asking them to think about different things like cubes and shapes and various other objects um, and then go to sleep. And then they go, okay, so this person was thinking about a cube. I wake them up and go, okay, well, you're thinking about a cube? I'm like, yes, okay, okay good. So that they record that that MRI image was that of a cube. And they do this and they cataloged a whole, whole wide variety of different shapes, objects, stimuli, thoughts, and ideas. These are relatively like simple stuff like cubes rather than a dream about um... cats emotions things like that okay so simple single quantifiable ideas and from this they managed to build a huge library of all these images of mri like brain images of what was going on in the people's dreams or brains while they were dreaming okay so you've got this massive library set up what did they do next well they actually then said okay now just go to sleep normally and they made people go to sleep, which inside an MRI machine is particularly hard. They make a lot of noise. Uh, I think you'd be dreaming about the experiment they were doing on you rather than just, you know, your normal dreams. That's right. Um, and they got, put them to sleep and then they woke them up and said, well, what did you dream about? And they said, okay, I was dreaming about this. And they looked at what their prediction of what they were dreaming about based upon the matching of the signals they saw in the brain with their library of images. And did it work? Reasonably well. They actually found about 60% of the time actually correctly identifying. The big limitation here is obviously your library of images. If you have to make a catalogue of every kind of dream or idea that someone could think about, it's a really exhaustive process, but it shows that you are able to identify them. Unfortunately, a big drawback of this study was that they were done in not complete REM sleep, but a stage before that. So REM sleep is where you have your most vivid dreams, the mm-hmm. dreams that you're flying, the dreams that you're ruling over um, Alpha Centauri as an ant overlord, things like that. But they, um, they're they not able to measure that stage at this part of the study. The next step is to try to use the catalogue they've developed from lighter stages of sleep and apply it to the more intense, vivid stages of sleep and identify images and shapes there. Could this be considered some kind of um, mind-reading device? Well, effectively, it's not a mind-reading device. It's a dream-reading device. So if you're able to figure out what people are dreaming about, you could find out all sorts of things about them. And I won't, we were, there's a whole bunch of psychology and Freudian psychology about mm-hmm. dreams and everything like that. And uh, so instead of worrying about what dreams mean, we're not answering that question because who knows what they mean, but we're measuring and figuring out exactly what dreams are. So that means that, You don't have to worry about forgetting your dreams. You could have a device that actually would 
in maybe 10, 20 years, capture the dreams that you've had and say, yeah, today you dreamt about cubes, James. And he's like, thank you. Thanks. I really needed to be reminded of that. Eventually, it might even be like sucking a pillow so that as you go to sleep, that like all your dreams get absorbed into the pillow and you can use it for like, I don't know, story writing or something. That would be really great for creative types who love to use inspiration that they get in dreams. Mm -hmm. The only problem with this is that you don't want to have an MRI every night, which is what this technology uses, because that is a surefire way to A, not only have a huge electricity bill, but B, probably do a lot of radiation damage to your brain. What if you have a very magnetic personality? Well, I'm su I suppose then you could influence your pillow very easily, <laughs> and maybe your dreams are more easy to read if you're more magnetic and charming. So, Al, if you want to contribute to this uh, catalogue of dreams, get in touch with Japan where they're doing all these kinds of research at the, um, at the university's neuroscience laboratories in Kyoto. So Japan is charging ahead on reading our dreams and figuring out what they all mean. So, Lauren, have you ever really felt that you're in a huge amount of pain? On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate that feeling right now? The feeling of pain of trying to record this podcast? I would rate it a 10. Wait, is 10 the low number or is 10 the high number? 10 is the high number. So, in terms of measuring pain, it can be really subjective and depending on people's tolerance. So some people have a lower tolerance for pain, where other people can be completely fine with having a broken arm and playing a full game of football. Scientists and doctors have really wondered about ways to actually measure pain in an objective and clinical matter. But so far, they've been eluded by this mystery. Oh, well, that makes sense. I mean, when you go to a doctor and you've got like a fever, they can measure your temperature using a thermometer. However, if you're feeling pain, they can't exactly tell what type of pain or how much you're feeling. Yeah, it's not like they have a measurement of pain like the OWL's index. Exactly. Some neuroscientists have been thinking about this problem. So neuroscientists at the, the CU Boulder University have come up with a couple of ways to uh, analyse the data of the brain and try and unlock the secrets of pain. So what have they been up to, Lauren? So what they did was they had a few willing participants. As opposed to unwilling participants. As opposed to unwilling participants. require willing participants. Generally, we hope so. Well, considering what's to do with pain, you don't exactly want unwilling participants that you're just, like, stabbing hot needles into. That's which is, true. Which is actually what they were measuring. They were um, putting heat against skin and measuring um, different levels of pain. Because when you're in pain, different parts of the brain um, are activated. And so measuring what happens in each parts of the brain, um, finding specific patterns in that when they um, put different levels of heat against a person's skin. So they were scanning the brain activity using ECG and uh, MRIs mm -hmm. to actually measure the activity of the brain when they had this heat applied to them. Exactly. So what did they see when they looked at all these pictures of brains, Lauren? Using the help of a the computer, they identified a distinct neurological signature for the pain so they found a pattern across multiple systems um, in, in how much pain people feel. So the, the, the actual response of the brain, the, the, the way that the brain was acting, displayed a certain pattern of, of firings of neurons and, and basically the signals inside the brain. And they could match that with about 90 to 100% accuracy for different types of heat across different brains. And what's interesting is they actually went a step further and identified different patterns for different types of pain, such as like emotional pain. So what they did was they showed pictures of um, the subject's exes to them, so they felt that social pain, and it actually showed a different, um, different signal compared to the um, pain induced by heat. And that's really interesting because it, it shows that pain of different kinds, even emotional pain, undertakes a similar response in the brain, but of a different kind. And that, that's really great. So this hasn't been used quite yet to measure calculated levels of pain, but the progress is that it's getting towards actually identifying um, significant stages of pain 
And the, the benefits of this really goes towards helping people with long-term chronic pain. And you can help diagnose the different kinds of problems and pains that people are having, whether or not this might be a pain associated with one type of stimulus or another, and help diagnose the issues in the pain. One of the th final tests that they also used was to actually see if they gave them a, a, an analgesic or an anesthetic to dull the pain, if that changed the brain's response. And you could actually see a change in the way that the brain was reacting, the patterns that displayed in the brain, to show that the pain was gone. So would this help with developing different analgesics? And you can actually measure the effectiveness of these, not just in a general, how did you feel? Did you feel like that was less painful than us cutting into you with a different one? But an actual quantifiable scientific way. And that's a really great thing for medical science. I think we should just um, reinforce that all the participants in this experiment were willing and no actual real harm was I done. wonder if they knew about the pictures of the exes, though. That's kind of harsh. <laughs> Where do you think they got them? That's true. That's a very good point. Friends. So we've talked a bit here about pain in the brain and how we can measure that. Hopefully not in Spain, but in the US. We're now going to play our Who Am I game, where we guess the identity of a famous scientist. So, Justin, yes. who am I? So, he was born in Yorkshire. Oh, he had a good accent then. Mm. He finished school before moving to the British Army. Well, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, well, I'm guessing if he's, um, he's probably 1940s, so he'd probably be old now. That makes sense. Okay, so we're looking at someone from World War II generation. Gotcha. He then, he then completed his undergraduate studies in okay. agriculture. Okay, well, that makes sense for a strop and lad from Yorkshire. <laughs> However, he then went on to study at the Institute of Animal Genetics in the University of Edinburgh and received a PhD before joining the University of Cambridge in Ooh, 1963. Actually, this, this is a really big rise. Okay, so it's 63. Hmm. It's not much of DNA like cricks. You're not that far wrong. Ooh, okay, okay. So later on, he, this man began to study this human fertilisation and while continuing his work at Cambridge, which laid the groundwork oh, for his future on, hold work. On. Hold on. He moved from animals and agriculture to human fertilisation? This is, this is getting a bit questionable here. I don't, I don't know about this guy now. This seems a bit weird, just, just registering my hesitation. Not sure quite how he, he made that jump, but there you are. However, when some of these studies were moved forward, he found some significant um, issues with government, including lawsuits from the British government. What was he doing? That would have been so controversial. That would have made the government, like, I mean, was he breeding animals and humans? That's terrible. This is not Huxley, is it? No. Much as the, that great author may be renowned, this is not Brave New World. Well, that's good, because I was worried about the Brave New World that involves the crossbreeding of plants, animals, and humans. <laughs> no wonder the British tried to make laws against it. So, this, the technique he developed came to worldwide fame with the birth of the world's first so-called test tube baby. Ooh, oh, I know this. This, is, this also closely involves research done at Monash University, my alma mater, which also was heavily involved in the development of IVF. Unfortunately, I don't know who this gentleman is. He was knighted in the 2001 birthday honours for his services to human reproductive biology. Nope. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, I am out of smart answers, unless, of course, it is either Crick's, Huxley, which both of which I don't know. It's not Charles Darwin, even though we previously eliminated that last week. <laughs> no, Dawkins. Maybe Dawkins? No, this has nothing to do with memes. And is he a sir? I don't know. I don't think the Queen would knight him. He's too, he's too outrageous for that. All right, well, so, so who, who are you, James? I'm stumped. I'm completely stumped. I, I am Sir Robert G. Edwards, who sadly passed away on the 10th of April earlier this week after a long illness. He's, the fa he's considered the founder of in the in vitro fertilisation technique and, develop and helped millions of people around the world have children when they otherwise would not have been able to. And IVF has really been an outstanding kind of development. It's 
very expensive, very complicated, but it's given a lot of hope to people who aren't able to have children of their own. And I, I've heard a quote from this man who's actually said that, you know, having children is one of the biggest gifts that anyone could have. And he's really glad that he's helped so many other people have that experience when they really wanted to. So this, this gentleman, Sir Robert Edwards, he's, he's contributed greatly to society and it, it's a deep loss for the medical science community as a whole. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. On today's episode, we talked about controlling things with our mind, analysing our dreams, and measuring human responses to pain. This has been Lauren, James, and Justin. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information on the Young Scientists of Australia.